0: Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is CEO of the online music learning company Melodics. That's Sam Gribben. First of all, you might have wondered, how do you earn a gold or platinum record? Well, there was a great article in HypeBot all about this, and what it laid out was that it used to be easy to figure out. Back in the days of physical product like vinyl and CDs and cassettes, if you sold 500,000 units, that was considered a gold album, a gold record. If you sold 1 million, that was platinum. And if you sold 10 million or more, that was called diamond. For music videos, 50,000 views is considered gold, 100,000 is considered platinum, and 1 million is considered diamond. Now, these are certified by the RIAA, or the Record Industry Association of America. These certifications are a lot different in other countries, especially ones that have smaller populations, so the numbers are far less for gold and platinum and diamond. So that was easy because we had physical sales that we could look at, but how does it work in today's streaming world? Well, the RIAA has developed something called the Equivalent Album Unit, or EAU, this means a 1,500 streams equals one album sale. So that means that 750 million streams equals 500,000 album sales, which equals a gold record. Now, these streams are for on-demand audio from Spotify and Apple Music and in video from YouTube. An example of a recent gold album, Lover by Taylor Swift. Now, what about platinum? You need 1.5. Billion streams. It's billion with the B. That's the equivalent of one million album sales. An example of that would be purpose by Justin Bieber. Diamond, though. That's fifteen billion streams. Yes, that equals ten million album sales. Yes, there are many that have actually reached this point. The latest one is Greatest Hits by Queen. It's never been easy to get a gold record, let alone platinum or diamond. That said, even back in the days of vinyl, diamond certification was, and is, reserved only for the superstar artists. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new Hitmaker Engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple books. And remember, You can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Here's a piece of news that's not entirely a surprise. As expected, Avid was acquired However, everyone thought it would be Francisco Partners, which already owns a number of audio and audio technology companies, but instead it was acquired by STG, or Symphony Technology Group. STG owns 50 mostly technology and software companies. Probably the only one you'd recognize is SurveyMonkey, but they do specialize in technology. This is probably not a good thing for Avid though. You might be wondering what a private equity company is. Well, a private equity company is an investment company that makes money by buying companies that they think have some value and can be improved. However, it's all based on financial engineering at its worst, as most of the money is borrowed to make the acquisition happen. So the company is now saddled with a lot of debt. That means in order to show short-term financial gains, which they need to actually prove to their investors that they're making money, the private equity company usually goes cost-cutting, and that means a lot of layoffs of staff. That leads to loss of experienced employees, reduced morale, and a general decline in the overall company expertise. Usually also, it results in less innovation and product development as a private equity company tries to squeeze every last dollar out of the company as it's trying to pay down the debt. Then on top of it, They usually replace the management team with people that don't have any knowledge of the industry, but they are so-called management experts. An acquisition like this is almost never a good thing, as the purpose of the private equity company is just short-term profits, yet they still get management fees, and hopefully they'll turn around and sell it in a few years if all goes well. We've seen what's happened before when private equity gets involved in the music business, and Guitar Center is a prime example. The good thing for Pro Tools users is that there are so many great alternatives available, at least on the music side. Not so much for post-production, though, where Avid is still the giant that rules. Except for a few people who made money on their stock buybacks, I don't think there are many Avid users who are jumping for joy over this deal. My guest today is Sam Gribben, the CEO of the music learning platform, Melodics. Melodics is a software platform that teaches you to play keyboards, pad controllers, and electronic drums. Melodics uses gamification of practice to encourage you to keep working at getting better. Prior to founding Melodics, Sam was CEO of the DJ software company, Serato, where he joined as employee number four and eventually helped to scale the company into an industry leader. During the interview, we spoke about how to keep the fun in learning music, why many DJs and producers want to learn how to play keyboards, how the term musician ruins music for many people, why music teachers have embraced melodics, and much more. I spoke with Sam via Zoom from his office in Auckland, New Zealand. Your background in the music business, how did you get in? Were you a player originally? So my background
1: as a musician is rather checkered. I had very patient parents who let me learn all sorts of instruments when I was a kid and I was no good at any of them. And then when I was at college, I started DJing. And the great thing about that was, uh, I could get a bit creative with DJing, but I could also just let a record play and it would sound good. And I was like, I think this is for me because I I can, I can just make something sound good by playing other people's music. If I'm not feeling quite creative enough. And I was also studying electrical engineering at college. And this was in the 90s at a time when kind of digital music was really uh, taking off and i thought about this idea of being able to like dj with vinyl which is what i was learning to do thanks to my roommate's turntables but combining that with music that was on a computer and it was just starting to become kind of a possibility that you could have the benefits of djing with vinyl where you can control the tempo and control the timing of when you mix things to create a nice seamless mix and do interesting combinations, but have the music coming out of a computer where you had a whole lot of other possibilities, mostly just a huge, access to a huge amount of music. And so I knew enough through my studies to know that this was feasible, but I wasn't technically competent enough to work out exactly how to do it. But basically, fast forward to 10 years later, I uh, met a couple of guys that started this company called Serato, and they were doing exactly that. And I had the benefit of 10 years of dreaming about this thing and coming up with ideas and approaches, basically just sat them down and convinced them that they should give me a job. And I think they'd had a lot of people who were interested in what they were doing, but none who were quite as obsessive about it as I was. So they hired me as general manager at Serato. I was employee number four and I went on to become CEO. And about two weeks ago, they just sold the company to Pioneer DJ. So it's been a great success story. And that was my entry into music tech. After being at Serato for 10 years, I decided I wanted to do something different. Still in music tech, but in a kind of slightly different space. And so that's when I got into more of the kind of learning how to play instruments and the education side of things.
0: Well, the cool thing about Music Ed is the fact that there's always people that want to learn how to play or do something in music. And it doesn't matter what the age. So it's it's always a really good space to be in, I think. Let's talk about melodics because it is really interesting what your approach is. So how did the whole thing start?
1: Well, I had tried to learn a lot myself. And people always ask me, you know, in my line of work, are you a musician? And i say, really? Well, it's such a loaded term, but not really. I mean, I don't play particularly well. And I found it very, very difficult to learn. And one of the things that was really challenging was I could put a lot of time into practice, but was never quite sure that I was actually practicing the right things. And it, it became pretty clear to me that I was, in fact, practicing a lot of the wrong things. And that the time I spent practicing was very, very unproductive. And when I could, when I had the opportunity to, I would get lessons and but yeah, I, it would go so much better and so much faster, but I still relied on a lot of kind of motivation for myself to, to stick at it and keep practicing and do the homework, all those things. And so I was looking around at, at kind of different products that existed at the time when I started Melodics and there were, A few that were really inspiring to me, um, Duolingo, Nike Run Club, Fitbit, uh, Calm, Headspace, all of these products that were kind of designed to help people to do something useful, um, something that they wanted to do, like exercise more or learn a language, but needed a bit of a kind of more of a motivational push and a bit more guidance. And I was thinking, why is no one applying what these companies are doing for their, in their areas to musical instruments. And had a look around, and there were a few, but I didn't think anyone was completely like, okay, there's no point in even trying here because this company's completely got this. So I definitely saw some opportunity there. And it evolved a lot between first concept and, and when we actually launched it. And one of the big things was talking to music teachers and understanding how much of a challenge practice is for them right up to college level, you know, talk to professors at the local New Zealand, Auckland University, and they're like, even at this level, students don't really practice. And so I, because of that, put a lot of emphasis on not just learning, but practice. And and to this day, we work with teachers a lot. I think we're, you know, the ultimate combination, I would say, is using melodics and having lessons, because the, the teacher can, there's only... There's something only an in person person, you know, like an in person lesson can do. And there's something really magic about that. But what we can do with melodics is is keep you engaged and keep you practicing and keep you like enthusiastic and having fun and making progress and a little bit like working on the right things every day in between those sessions. Um so yeah, that's that's where it all came from.
0: One of the things that you just mentioned that I think is a central part of melodics is the fun. Part and and keeping things fun because that does keep people engaged. And one of the problems, and again, myself being a musician and going through that, is practicing is not fun, especially if you're doing the same thing over and over and over. It gets boring fast. So how do you overcome that?
1: That's the fundamental kind of idea that I want to challenge uh, with Melodics practice. Like we, I never say. Learn to play an instrument in 21 days or I never say the easiest way to learn. You know, learning to play an instrument is, is hard. It's challenging. But I think the really common perception is that it's not fun while you're doing it. And I think it really, really can be. So there's two parts of that. One is it's more fun when you recognize the progress you're making. And chances are someone is actually making progress. They just don't always see it. And a really good tutor, a really good teacher will make it fun by being encouraging. It's just kind of fundamental human psychology. It's like you're making progress, am I? So a lot of what we do is is feeding back that progress. This is we were, and this is where you are now, and you can go back, and this is how you were playing, and that thing that was really hard before is easy now. So it's like it's, that's quite motivating, and also just really leaning into the fun part. So, you know, we, we we gamify things a bit. It's always a fine line. I don't want to do it too much. I don't want people to feel like they're just playing a game and not learning a real skill. But a lot of those methods do really help to keep you engaged. You know, like there was a little feature that got added to our software a few weeks ago, and I knew it was coming, but when I experienced it, it still gave me that little bit of a kind of a dopamine hit, put a smile on my face, and that was after... Playing a lesson that I've been really working on and grinding and grinding and you know putting a lot of time into and not really getting anywhere when there's a marked improvement, a screen comes up and it's like just basically telling you that your hard work is paying off and those little things kind of really add up um, and make a big difference. So I think yeah, I really wanted to just kind of challenge this this very widespread, wide-held opinion that practicing is not fun um, and that it's boring because you're doing the same thing over and over and like, actually. I mean, yeah, it's not the most exciting part, but we can actually make it pretty enjoyable.
0: Are we talking just beginners here?
1: Well, um, you know, I'd say two-thirds of our customers are beginners, but that's because most of the people coming in to learn an instrument are kind of by their very nature beginners. But our some of our more engaged customers are more intermediate and advanced. And again, that's because... There's always things to learn, but also the more you play, the more you recognize that practice is such an important part of it. So, you know, we have customers that are on a, that have played for the last like thousand days, every day in a row. It's quite mind blowing. I, I wish I had, were able to kind of keep that level of commitment. So, you know, th- those customers are, are definitely not beginners and we develop a curriculum to go up to really, really advanced techniques.
0: The reason why I mentioned, when people ask me if there's one thing that you could have changed in your life, what would you have done? And it was practice more. I was a, a professional musician. I toured until I was like 40. And I got to a point where I stopped learning. And it's not that I didn't want to learn more. It's that I didn't know what else to work on at that point. I didn't have a teacher. And if I did, it would probably, you know, have helped but a lot of it was oh show me what to work on and i will i'll jump in no problem but i didn't have that so my point here is that having direction on that okay you've got to this now let's go over here because you need to do this because it will lead to this i think is really important so i'm sure that that's something that you have
1: yeah it's so important it's so important and one of the things i obsess about is is i call it like efficiency of practice i mentioned Earlier, as you know, it's, it's easy to spend a lot of time when you do practice, just practicing what you already know, maybe, or the wrong things, or, you know, not finding the, the things that will push you up to that next level. And in education, there's this concept called the learning edge, which interestingly is a concept that's in lots of other things as well. It's also in like computer game design called challenge balance. And it's interesting for us being a little bit in the kind of overlap between those two things it's this idea of of balancing the 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 gap between too hard and too easy it's too easy you get bored and too hard you get frustrated and the key is to kind of bounce against those two extremes a little bit and in computing computer games it's you know it's quite obvious you you go into the dungeon and you pick up a stick and you fight some goblins and then the goblins get bigger and harder and then you get a sword upgrade and and so, th- and that's really what keeps those games really entertaining. And in learning, learning music and learning in general, it's just this, this idea of like, here's something that you know how to do. So you're feeling like you've got that level of mastery, but not too much because otherwise you're bored. And why am I learning this? And here's something really challenging, but not too much of that either because otherwise you'll, you'll um, become a little bit overwhelmed or a, a bit intimidated by it. So it's 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 really that's one of the things that we're always looking at is like how do we keep people in that zone between too hard too easy between boredom, boredom and frustration and and that's, that's the kind of optimum learning space
0: i noticed that there are a lot of songs from a lot of different genres for people to learn and a lot of different time periods i think that's important too because you have to have something that you want to learn how to play
1: yeah, that's very much by design. And it's been super interesting. The feedback we've had from our customers about that, because part of it is exposure to music that they wouldn't have listened to otherwise. And we get a lot of people talking about, you know, I never would have played a Doobie Brothers song because I never thought that actually that old music would be relevant to the track beats i'm producing now i mean it's maybe not the best example but but people repeatedly tell us that they picked up super interesting things from playing music from different genres from different eras different styles and just how it broadened their horizons even if they then just brought that back to their very particular style and didn't necessarily mean that they started playing all of these different genres or styles but it did really help them and give them kind of different points of view so that's yeah very intentional
0: One of the things I noticed was that you specialize in keyboards and electronic drums, finger tapping. I didn't see anything for guitar, which I thought might have been the most obvious of them all.
1: There's a few reasons. It's a business strategy that I've taken is to really start in a small area, like with a very particular type of customer. The other kind of obvious strategy is go for the biggest possible market. And the big, the big instruments, are, uh, the guitar and piano, they're still really, really dominant. But it's much harder to differentiate when you're in that big space. Whereas, by you know, like we we are we're keyboard lessons for music producers. It's a very particular offering. But that means that we can really talk to those people and say, okay, so you make your own music, you you produce music. What can we do for you that you can't get anywhere else? You know, and a lot of them say, Well, I get piano lessons, but I'm not actually really trying to learn piano. I'm trying to learn to play keys to work into my own music, you know. So I want to learn chord progressions and I want to learn melodies that I can apply to bass lines as opposed to like learning to play the song, for example. And so it just means that we can with a with a kind of smaller, tighter audience, we can be much more in tune to what that particular customer is looking for and I think develop a better product than if we just say, here's something for everyone.
0: You know, you mentioned keyboard for producers. I had someone on my podcast four or five years ago and he was uh, working for Goldman Sachs in New York. And what he would do is he had a real upright piano that he would take out onto Fifth Avenue and play during his breaks. And he would shoot it and then put it up on YouTube. So he had a hundred of these. And he was a prodigy. He was great. What ended up happening was he quit his job at Goldman. And he started a course specifically for producers, learn how to play keyboards for producers. And he was very successful with it. But he stopped, and the reason why was after he taught a lot of these producers, they started to hire him as a musician and then as a, a co-writer and everything. So he, he made the transition. But the interesting part here is the fact that he did have that vision as well, as there's a lot of DJs and a lot of producers that can't play a keyboard, and they know it would be better for them if they had some background on it. So I think you're you're going the right direction on it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in part it comes from my time in the industry and understanding mm. like the kind of manufacturer's point of view and which products are successful. And I know that there's a lot of people who make music who have a computer and a pair of monitor speakers and a MIDI keyboard as the kind of like core of their studio. And they might have some outboard gear or some plugins and those sorts, but you know, computer speakers. MIDI keyboard is a pretty standard setup, and I also know that you can make great music without being able to play the keys, because you can you can program things, you can sample things, you can. There's lots of different ways of doing it. You know, you can you can draw your chord progressions with your mouse and make beautiful music in that way. But almost universally, if you could play the keyboard, it would change things for you, and it might change in you know a few different ways. It, definitely changes your workflow because playing is is kind of faster than drawing in. You're more likely to kind of make mistakes that actually turn into kind of features and ideas that you can run with. And a big part of the appeal with our customers is that you're more likely to get a more organic sound, more, more of a you sound, you know, like the, if you play it, then it has the little imperfections that ultimately kind of become your style so we knew that there was this massive untapped opportunity for people who have the gear and have have a keyboard and and make great music but can't really play it. And as I said before, um, the alternative is piano lessons, and that's a really different thing. You know, like most piano teachers are not thinking like a producer, and you know, it might be something like I found a, a great sample I want to use, or I've made my own sample. I found I made this loop. And it's great, and I don't really know who, how I made it. It just I played it, or I made it, and it sounded good. And now I want to write a bass line that goes with it. Uh, how do I how do I do this? It's a very different set of challenges than finding a neighborhood piano teacher and saying I want to learn to play jazz piano or something like that. So um, yeah, it is it is does present some interesting opportunities, and it is interesting to see the types of lessons and courses that music producers go for. They're really quite different.
0: One of the topics that you suggested we talk about, which I find completely interesting, is how the term musician has ruined music for us all. So can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, we we as a company were talking about our our mission and you know, like why do we exist and what, what is the mark we want to have on the on the world? And the word musician kept coming up in that discussion and it just means different things for different people. But what I took away from it is that musicians to many people are, are others. You know, we talked before about how lots of people want to learn to play instruments and they find practice is hard. And, you know, I could extend that kind of, I think, common perception of I want to start out. I've been to the guitar center and I bought a guitar or a keyboard or whatever it is, but I'm going to have to do a whole lot of practice, which is going to be really not fun and going to take a lot of grind and energy and motivation and not be very enjoyable, but eventually I'll pop out the other side of that and I'll be a musician. And I think that that whole approach should be challenged. And if you'll forgive me the slight kind of sidetrack, I think there's an analogy that I quite like from the 50s, 60s, 70s, when athletics was, I think, a similar thing. And in the 50s, there were athletes and athletes were people who did athletics, and they were kind of another group of people. And then along came jogging in the seventies, and along came companies like Nike and Adidas. And you know, it, it was not that long ago that if you wore a pair of running shoes, it was because you were a runner or an athlete. And now people just do it as a as a lifestyle, as a as a as a you know, way of being healthy and a way of just getting more from life. I think the same could be applied to to music that. It doesn't need to be this arduous journey that you must complete to pop out the other side as a musician. It's a lot more accessible than people think. And it's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but you can learn to play three chords on a guitar and play with someone else and enjoy it and get a lot of enrichment in your life from it. So I think this term musician is really double-edged because it just puts a lot of people off. It, it It puts an activity that should be, I think, accessible to most people up on a pedestal. And I also notice that really across borders, culturally, it is a very different thing in different cultures. And in in Western culture, I think the activity of playing music has become separated from kind of regular life in such a way that then, you know, there are these other musicians and a lot of other parts of the world, it's not like that. People play music just generally. And it's a lot more part of, Normal life, and they just don't have this kind of distinction between you are or you aren't a musician. I do get carried away with analogies, but the other one I really like is cooking. And I love cooking, and I'm always trying to be better at it, mostly so I can cook a meal for my friends. And I'm not trying to be a chef, you know, there doesn't need to be some label that goes with it or some end goal or some aspiration. It's just part, you know, a fun part of life is to cook for other people. And I think the same is to, to play music for your own enjoyment or with other people should be the same thing.
0: You know, it's funny you should mention all this. I spent some time in Louisiana. Of course, New Orleans is there and Baton Rouge where I spent more a little more time. And the level of musicianship is fantastic. It's very earthy because it's not about precision. It's about playing from the heart. But when I speak with all the musicians that come from there, there's something that's in common that they all have and it's that they all grew up playing in the living room for their families and that was just part of growing up where you entertained everybody you entertain your families as a result they got very good at a lot of different things first of all entertaining second of all at playing and it's kind of unique because it's not in other parts of the country of our country the the way you know that is but it's the same analogy where they don't think so much about being musicians. This is just life to them.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you see countries where that is common. You know, I, I don't know why I'm immediately thinking of Ireland, but you know, the, the culture, music culture in Ireland is very strong, and a lot of it's very like involved. Lots of people are involved in it. It's the same thing where you just don't you don't have this kind of separation between like that person's a musician, and these people are not musicians. It's an exhibit. It's a thing that people
0: do. Yeah. Melodics is in partnership, in a way, with music teachers in that you're not competing with them. You're an adjunct, which I think is unique to many educational courses like this. And You mentioned it several times in our conversation, but I also notice in looking at your website where that's a real part. You're trying to incorporate or you're trying to, you know, actively be part of an educator's toolbox, so to speak.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I you mean, know, like I think when I was first imagining it and speaking to friends who are most certainly musicians, they were asking me things like, you know, how are you gonna how are you gonna address how someone sits at the piano with your technology? Because that's a really important part of it. It's like, well, actually. I don't think the technology can do that well. Uh, You know, a person who's watching you can do that. You know, it's just like what what can we focus on that we can do really well? And as it's evolved, I mean, certainly in the first few years, I think a lot of teachers would have been quite not particularly supportive of what we do. But then, what we started to see is more and more of them were just coming to us, and the kind of. We, we, we got our messaging right, but also the penny drop for them. It's like, ah, this is actually something that my students should do as their homework because then they're going to come back to class, come back to the lesson more engaged and having had more progress and just kind of, you know, I think it's every teacher's frustration that they you know, spend half the lesson doing the stuff that the, the students should have done in their, in their own time and practice. And then we've taken it further. and We have a partnership with Berkeley College of Music where we are working with them to create curriculum. And this this combination, I think, works over and over and over of I like, often we'll work with people who have video lessons online. And my pitch to them is your video lessons are really, really good for some part of it. You can see what's happening and you can, see, you know, student can actually see what you're doing. And you can talk and explain things in a way that's really suits the format. And what we can add to that, that the lessons, video lessons can't do is that we can make it interactive. You can take that really hard part of the lesson and loop it and slow it down and and break it down into little pieces. And so it's, it's the kind of like the exercise that goes along with your lesson. And that's been a great combo.
0: Yeah, I bet it is. Last question, Sam. Between Serato and then starting your own company, you've been through a lot of the trials and errors of the business world. What's the best piece of advice, business advice, maybe, that you've received or maybe you learned along the way?
1: The thing that I've learned the most along the way is you can never talk to your customers too much. And that's a bit of a cliche, everyone will say that, so I'll try and make it slightly more insightful, is don't be afraid to come up with an idea and think you know what people want but then put it in front of them and be willing, willing to just listen. And and, you know, chances are you've come up with this idea and this proposal and people are actually more interested in part of it. That's not the part that you think is the main thing, but it can be surprising. You you, you put your idea to a customer and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all that stuff you're talking about, that's cool. But the real benefit of what you're telling me is this other thing. And you have to be really open to that and, be willing to let go of your ideas and say, I know I'm onto something. It's just not the thing I thought it was. And and be willing to change. That happens over and over again.
0: You can find out more about Sam and Melodics at Melodics.com. That's Melodics, M-E-L-O-D-I-C-S.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To so listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select a podcast tab or to com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.